welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, welcome to today's episode. We're talking hashtag real talk about starting a nonprofit. So if I had a nickel for every time someone called me to ask me about starting a nonprofit, I would have a lot of nickels. But today we're going to be talking with Andrea Ortega and Kenneth Brown, both of whom have an interesting perspective on starting a nonprofit. Kenneth actually just started a nonprofit of his own, and Andrea is involved in helping with the background infrastructure of starting a nonprofit. So we're going to talk about what it takes to start a nonprofit, considerations that you should make, and also let's talk about the fact that nonprofits are actually small businesses, right? That's something that we sometimes forget. So welcome, Andrea, Kenneth, to the show. I'm so excited to be yeah, here. Good afternoon. All right, so why don't we start with you, Kenneth. If you could talk to us briefly about your journey to starting a nonprofit and what you're doing now. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Just like most people that start nonprofits, I just had this desire to help. And with the pandemic, I knew that housing, which is already a big issue in this country, I knew that during the pandemic, it was going to be even bigger. And I wanted to help. So I started to start my nonprofit. I have experience in flipping homes, so I wanted to do it for charity. But just like most people starting nonprofits, you're not aware of the insane amount of paperwork that goes into getting this thing done. You know, someone says, so you're gonna start a 501c3? I said, 501 what? (laughs) So there's a lot that goes into it that you don't know. So I was fortunate enough to reach out to Brightbridge and they become like a partner to me in setting this thing up. I was able to set up my 501c3. I was able to get registered in the different states that I'm gonna be doing business at our Legacy Community Restoration Foundation. We work in Florida, Baltimore, and New York City and California. They were able to put together my paperwork in all of the states that I'm working in and I can just get down to the business of blessing families. That's beautiful. Thanks, Kenneth. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get more into the work that you're doing. But Andrea, can you talk to us a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. So I'm the director of nonprofit services at Brightbridge. I was a part of not the founder, but technically that startup phase for I call it a rebirth for an organization that was established, but I took over. So I was an executive director for eight years and I came onto Brightbridge, which has been around for 16 years, helping nonprofit startups with their paperwork and now our development services. My job really entails kind of a little bit about we get people with all these big dreams and things. And in a way, I'm kind of the person that supports those big dreams, but with a big reality check, right? (laughs) Hashtag real talk, like, that's great. And we're going to do this, but there's going to be a lot that goes into it from a business perspective. Like if you, what's the secret to successful? It's a lot of hard work, a lot of legal things that you might need to understand and learn. But most importantly, if you want it to succeed, it needs to run like a business, no matter how big or small, right? It could be as small as a little hot dog stand and you're successful in the things that you do or big as a multi-chain business, but whatever your nonprofit entails, it, like you said, you know, that business perspective has to be in there. So we help a lot of these startup people with their dreams and whatever they need from us. So Andrea, let's talk about My favorite topic, fundraising. So often I talk with people and they have a big dream about changing the world. And I know folks are not as naive as the folks that I am referring to, but they're like, I'm going to start a nonprofit. I'm going to get grants. And like, that's how it's going to be. I'm just like free money is just going to like fall down from the sky. 
And so usually when people come to ask me about starting a nonprofit, usually number one, I'll say, don't do it. Because I think often there are probably too many nonprofits out there. And usually just because you love, I always say hugging panda bears doesn't necessarily mean that you need to start an organization to hug panda bears. And then number two, I think to your point, we often forget that a nonprofit is a small business. So talk to me a little bit about the reality check that you have to give people about starting a nonprofit. Yes, for sure. I think this is one of the most exciting parts for me because I try to do it in a way where I'm educating them, right? They do come with this mindset sometimes, our clients that, okay, I'm going to get the 501c3 and money is going to roll on me. All the donors are going to know about me or all my friends are not going to be motivated or grants. I'm going to apply to all the grants and I'm going to get all the grants. And I don't think they really understand that the national average like to receive a grant is something, I think the last time I checked was like 20%. And that's very little considering how much money is giving out a year. And if you're a startup, Something that I really like to tell my clients when I'm kind of grounding them is they'll come to me. It's like, okay, Brightbridge, you did my stuff. Now I'll do my grants. And I'm like, we do offer grant services, but I don't think you're quite there yet. We have this reality of, and my boss has a great analogy or metaphor that I like to tell them. It's like everything in life is crawl, walk, run. You just founded this organization. You probably need to focus on your board of directors, on your volunteer management, on a lot of some other things that as a startup you're going to need, right? And I love to tell them when they're like, no, 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 no. I know I can get grants. I want to apply to grants. Give me grants. And I'm like, okay, so let's attempt to write a grant proposal. If I have a million dollars, am I going to give it to the organization who thinks they can do the job or to an already established organization that has proven data that with this $1 million, it's going to go to certain families. And then when they're kind of like, okay, then we're like, let's see what we can do for fundraising. But it's certainly not money pouring in your lap. You get the money they have this mentality that, you know, they're going to get the money to be able to do the work, but it's really you need to show that the work is good and the processes you have so you can get the money to do more. So I like to tell them, like, within your capacity, realistically, within the volunteers you have right now, what really can you do? Do it one time right within your capacity, and then you can make a, a case for yourself when you're asking for money. So that whole reality check is obviously hard, but exciting for me because I'm giving them the right tools for the future. It's not my goal to just be like, yeah, it's going to run on your lab. Let us do it. I want to really help them. Yeah, man. Such a buzzkill. <laughs> Metrics and... Proven. Yeah. I remember being, you know, in that spot and my board's like, why aren't we applying to grants? And most startups are volunteer ran. Ran, you worked for really big, but when you're in that startup, everything's volunteer ran. When they would be like, why aren't we applying to this? I'm like, are you going to handle the quarterly reports that they demand of us to do? And uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm here trying to run an organization. Like we need to do everything within our means kind of thing. Yeah. Just like in life, you don't. Mm -hmm. All right, Kenneth, let me switch over to you. So, I mean, to start a nonprofit in the middle of a pandemic is a bold move. It's a bold move. I like that. <laughs> Tell me what the biggest surprises for you have been in starting your nonprofit. Well, I was very excited about starting my nonprofit. And one of the biggest surprises to me was how sad you get when you realize you can't help everyone. I'll give an example. We went to a shelter to greet a family that had recently become homeless. Both people had jobs. They just could not keep up with the mortgage through the last couple of months because they both weren't able to pay the back mortgage. They got evicted. They lost their homes. 
when we put them in a new home, we realized there were about eight or nine other families at this shelter that really needed the same thing. And it kind of breaks your heart, but you just keep doing the work. You just keep doing the work and we're working hard. So at Legacy Community Restoration Foundation, we can one day become a little bigger than what we are and we can uh, stretch out a little wider. So Kenneth, talk to me a little bit about your resource strategy. So you mentioned that you have a background in flipping houses. So the work that you're doing now, are you pursuing philanthropic sources as your source of revenue? Or is there some like revenue generating that you're doing in the house? Are you fundraising at this point? Yes, we're absolutely fundraising right now. And we've had a Zoom meeting fundraiser about three weeks ago, which was very successful. People logged onto our website, LegacyCR.org, hit that little donate button and donated to us. And the money that we raise, all homes will be bought, renovated, and given to a needy family. Now, let me ask you this, Kenneth. I don't want to get too much into your business, and I want to throw it over to Andrea. But, you know, flipping homes is a pretty capital-intensive project, I would imagine. And so I'm just wondering, like, as you were thinking about starting out, how were you thinking about your startup finances? Were you taking it from your own pocket? Did you have a board of directors? Did you have, you know, startup capital? How did you get started? When I first decided to donate, it was out of my own pocket. We've now since had a board of directors and our board of directors have given to us generously. And we've had, as I said, a fundraising source that we had in the last couple of weeks. And we're now fundraising completely 100% to finance the charity. But again, it was my own personal funds at first. Right. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about this. Andrea, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you have to burst the bubble. I mean, we talked a little bit about like the idea that grant money will just fall from the sky. Mm -hmm. For me, I think the biggest misconception I've seen is that, yes, you're going to have to ask people for money. Mm -hmm. That that is part of the job. But I'm wondering, what are some other common misconceptions that you see with folks who come to you with stars in their eyes of changing the world? I think something I personally lived when I took over is that, like Kenneth, we have this idea that we can help the world and we say yes to everything. And aside from learning, we have this idea that we can be everything, the lawyer, the accountant, the person who volunteers, the person who flips the houses, who gets out and gets the families. And I think for me, I was truly successful when I was able to build a strong team, whether that's the board development or not necessarily building your board. And maybe the first initial one, it is your cousin and your friend, you know, even though you shouldn't have family members, but maybe it is someone close. But knowing the the end goal is to find powerful people in your community and the one that you want to help to serve on that board. When I learned to say no to some things, that's when I was able to say yes to the things within my grasp. This is a misconception that, yes, I can do it all because of my great idea and my passion, but you're going to do everything in pieces. You're never going to do those things full because you have so much on your plate. So I think really finding good volunteers, your board, and learning to delegate and give people responsibility so they feel like they're a part of something bigger. That's when I was most successful. I could finally focus on managing that, on helping understand more of the marketing, how we could get our name on there, how I can build myself as an image so people will give me money. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, like you're going to have to ask people to fund this project. And if it's just you, it might be like, okay, but if you have someone to back you up and a good board and more volunteers that, you know, help you with the building of the homes or the food bank or whatever it is that you do, that takes letting go a little bit. 
that takes learning a lot of different things. And I wish I had known about companies like Brightbridge because I tried to learn how to do the 990 by myself. I spent time trying to figure out what an annual report is. What is a 501c3? It's a 40, 50 page application to the IRS. So had I had, you know, and invested on something like this, then I could focus on the things I'm good at. But we try to be everything. An executive director is everything. Yeah. So Andrea, can you talk a little bit about, as you think about all of your clients and potential clients who approach you to start nonprofits, how do you know when they're ready? And will you actually turn folks away who you think are not ready? Because I imagine like you want people to be successful. So like, what are the indicators of whether someone is ready to start or not? That's a great question. I think for me, Brightbridge is a for-profit business, but we're in the business to educate people. So we accept everybody who qualifies, right? So there's IRS, not everyone qualifies, right? You have to be charitable. You have to meet the charitable classes. Your actual business plan has to be charitable. What we would recommend is at the end of, through our interviews and our interactions, we do make recommendations of this is how it could succeed. This is how it won't. That's not going to fly because at the end of the day, we're still in consulting, right? So our goal is to get clients through the door. We guarantee 501c3. So we won't take if you know that all you're trying to do is money laundering <laughs> and that's not going to fly. We definitely scan for people who truly have a purpose in terms of their mission and how successful they're going to be. That's also depending on so many factors, but we do our best to recommend them and be like, this is your crawl walk run step, right? And we can be a part of it or you have the freedom to choose, but this is what your plan should look like. And this is what you should strive if you want to be successful. Do we do as many dissolutions? Probably, you know, they mm-hmm. might come back in one or two years and be like, okay, didn't work out. Or I've had people who be like, my father died and I couldn't keep up with the organization. I have to dissolve. I'm not really sure what could be the circumstances, but we do at least provide a good start. Then if it happens, then everything. But we're very cautious about things that if I see something sketchy, it probably is. If you have to ask, am I charitable? Then it probably isn't. (laughs) Yeah. So Kenneth, let me go back to you. So are you still working full-time in addition to this nonprofit or have you focused 100% on this nonprofit? Well, I have been working full-time in addition to this, but on my full-time job, I have a team of about 40 people. So they really take up the slack when I'm trying to get this off the ground. And with our new board that I have in place, that has helped a lot. And the burden is not as heavy as it was when I first started. And so tell me a little bit about one of the key things about starting a nonprofit is making sure that you have the right board on board. In particular, helping the board to understand that part of their responsibility is to fundraise. Talk to me a little bit about how you brought your board together? Okay, well, how I brought my board together? Well, interestingly enough, Andrea told me when I was starting to bring my board together, listen, Kenny, you can't have your friends, you can't have your brother's uncle because he knows about the house business. And you're right, you're right. So what I did is through my other business, I raised money to finance films and television shows. So I reached out to the people that often have given me money to produce television shows or films and talked to them about this charity cause that I was starting. And actually, I was surprised at the reception I got. Everyone to a person was like, you know what, man, this coming year, 2021, is going to be really hard for some people with regards to having a home. I'd love to contribute. So I found out some, I Googled qualifications for board members and kind of laid down my bylaws and guidelines, sent it to them. We all came to an agreement. 
and they all thankfully chipped in and were happy to be on board. So it sounds like, Kenneth, you already had some background in fundraising, though, in the for-profit yes. sector. So talk to me a little bit about like how that has served you, because I think the biggest hurdle that I see, especially with new nonprofits and new EDs, is that they have no fundraising background. Okay. Yeah, it is. You know what, though? If you stick to why you're doing it, stick to your why. The hardest thing to do is to come to someone and ask, hey, I need X amount of dollars because I'm trying to do X, Y, Z. What you want to do is you want to tell them. You probably want to start with your mission statement and say, hey, guys, for example, at Legacy Community Restoration Foundation, we're on a mission to bring affordable housing to the underserved community members of our country. We feel that by revamping secondhand houses, we can ensure more people sleep comfortably at night. Then that gives them a little insight into what you're trying to do. And usually people say, well, can you tell me more about that? Well, you do know housing is a major issue. And right now with the pandemic, it's basically the perfect storm of issues that will affect a lot of people. And we're actually, thank God, we're all blessed to where we're not struggling as much, but your heart goes out to those that are. And usually when you stay on your mission and you tell them why you're doing it, people respond quite well. But I agree, the hardest thing to do is to ask them, but stay on mission. Yeah, I feel like the thing that, underlines all of this is that you were able to capitalize on your existing relationships, right? Exactly. These aren't like random people. These are people who you've already asked for money for. These are what we would call warm like They've already demonstrated. Yes, these were warm leads. So right. my advice would be go to people you know, people that trust you, explain to them fully what you're trying to do. Because if you're trying to start a nonprofit, you definitely want to help. And you have to be, as they say, passionate about it. So if you're passionate about it and people that already know you and trust you feel that, they'll be more than willing to help. So Kenneth, you don't have to answer this if you're uncomfortable with it, but I'm a nuts and bolts kind of a girl, a dollars and cents Mm -hmm. kind of a girl. So what kind of investment were you asking each board member to make as far as dollar amounts? Well, each board member put up $50,000 because to give you some, um, to give you a little background with the home. So when we acquired the property, we have to renovate the property. When we renovate the property, we want to furnish the property because the families that we're helping are in dire need, okay? So if they're in a shelter, the last thing they're able to do is to be able to afford to put first and last month's rent down or put enough 20% down for a mortgage. Even if they're able to do that, they can't furnish the place. They might have some issues with utilities. So We needed to have investments to the point where we can purchase a home, renovate it, furnish it, screen applicants, put them in the home. So to do that, if usually my industry, the film industry, if I'm coming to you for three and a half million dollars for a horror flick, $50,000 should really not be that much of a deal. You know what, Ken, what I love about what you're saying is like, let us just underscore this. Number one, you're being strategic about who you're bringing on the board. And number two, you're very clear that it is about a resource money investment, because I feel like the biggest thing that I have to deal with a lot is that people bring people on boards because they're like, oh, well, they're experts in X, Y, and Z, which is fine. And we, you do need a diversified board. But at the end of the day, you need to pay the bills. Like we need exactly. money in the door. Exactly. Advice, don't pay my bills. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, I'm going to open it up because there are some questions coming in. So Marvin, do you want to have an ask? 
Sure. Thanks, Ria, and thanks, everyone. I'm wondering if you could talk about fiscal sponsorship. What are the pros and cons of that? I've heard that sometimes it's helpful to sit underneath a mature organization that has worked with lots of nonprofits. Some people say that it's hard to exit that fiscal sponsorship over time. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I guess I can answer that question. We deal with some clients who come once they, usually once they want to separate, right? Because now they want their own 501c3. What's really difficult when exiting is that your money is all entangled with them. And you might have had your program running for five years, but your 990s are not going to show that because that money belongs to that fiscal sponsorship organization. So when you exit, you're really starting from scratch, maybe not on the program development, but definitely on the program support, like the fiscal, right? Because all of those finances went through that fiscal sponsorship. So now you finally seeked your own independent 501c3. But when I file your first 990, which a lot of grantors ask you to show proof that you have a, a longstanding fund and that, you know, there's a lot of grants that will say no to startup money. They'll be like, this isn't a grantee. This is for organizations who can prove they know how to do the work. So here you are, you've done the program five years, you have the data, but your 990 clearly shows that you barely have money in the bank because now you're starting over from the separation of your school. Now, sometimes you can explain it, but obviously it's, you know, on paper, it's still one of those things when you have to start. That's the biggest hurdle I see when exiting. I will say before you throw all your money in the investment, it's good to find an organization who maybe does have those connections. There are pros and cons to both. The reason why I might like fiscal sponsorship, it's because one, you're starting a brand new idea. You don't know if it's going to work before you make all the investment. Sometimes we have this idea. I love this concept because it resonates so much with me. We see people in a wheelchair and we think all they want to do is walk. All they want to do is walk. All they want to do is walk. And if you stop and talk to them, they might say, I don't really care about walking. I wish I could go to the bathroom on my own or I wish I could do something on my own or, you know. You have to know the community for your project. That's why grantors ask for data and success of a program. So I think fiscal sponsorship gives you that, hey, you're an already established work in the community. You have the trust of the community. Can I grab a couple families to try this, whatever? And then you can see, but then again, if it is successful, then the separation is a little different. So I think it's a lot about that, that first idea concept. But those are some of the things I see, which whatever route you decide to take. Yeah. And I can just add to that too, because I've done both things. Mm -hmm. I have to say that it's a little bit more capital intensive when you're running independently, because all of a sudden you have all the back office, like you have to run your own payroll. You have to have an auditor. You have to do your own finances or pay for a bookkeeper and a part-time CFO. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, there are certainly some advantages to having a fiscal sponsor, especially in the early days. Yeah. Like I said, they both have their pros and cons. All right. Another question coming in from Beth. Hi, I'm going to laugh because at least a couple of people truly understand this question. So I am recently joined the board of an organization that was housed by an independent school for 20 odd years. And there is a head of school change and we're moving to a new independent 501c3 and we'll be on college campuses instead. So we have this sort of weird combination of having a proven track record, but not under this 501c3. So writing to foundations is obviously tricky. I just am looking for any guidance from people who have thoughts on that. Oh, I was going to say, Beth, I know exactly this problem because I solved this exact problem. I thought um, you might. <laughs> yeah, I do have some insight. The way that I was really able to 
thread that needle was I capitalized on the existing foundation relationships that we had and just had a conversation. And then for any new organizations, I found that having an explanatory one-pager on the front helped to clarify some of the questions before they came up. But Andrea, I'd be curious about your thoughts. Yeah, I was going to say that you definitely can let them know as far as paperwork in the 990 Schedule O allows you to explain a little bit about your fiscal so you can release some numbers, at least on the, so it's recorded somewhere in those legal, which are public record. But I think the one page is great, right? Kind of that elevator speech explaining the past relationship, but it is a hurdle. A new brand, right? Sometimes you forget about how important a brand is, a recognizable one. But I can tell you about a change of brand. We were formerly Charity Net USA and now we're Brightbridge Nonprofit Solutions. It shouldn't be one day I'm just going to flip the switch. It should be slow, right? It should. I'm going to introduce you to this Brightbridge logo and I'm going to put you there and then you can transition all that. But there's ways to do it. Yeah. And I think once you get through that hurdle, you'll find that independence can be much nicer if it aligns better with the mission and the work you're trying to do. Yeah, that sounds right. Thank you both. Thank you. I actually have another question, Kenneth. So now yes. that you've started this nonprofit, what is the vision in the next, you say, three years? Like, are you looking to transition fully over to running this? Are you looking to hire a staff and be on the board? Like, what are you thinking? Well, in the next three years, I'm looking to transition over to do this basically full time. I feel like I really want to give back and I feel like this is my give back. And as I told you earlier, going to that shelter, finding this one particular family that we are blessed with a home a couple months ago, seeing that there were other families in the same situation, your heart kind of goes out to them. So that kind of sparked something in me. I want like to transition in about two to three years doing this full time. And again, I'm just a dollars and cents kind of girl. So have you built out a budget to make it sort of financially feasible for you to do? Because I think the challenge that I see with folks who are trying to start something is, you know, they have their full-time job and then they have a side hustle. And in order for their side hustle to be their full hustle, there's some realities about a salary that they must get to maintain their lives unless, you know, they have some other source of income. So can you talk to me a little bit about that transition for you? Actually, we're putting together my budget. The majority of the funds go to the houses and the partners that work with me. I don't particularly take a salary as of yet. And I kind of get yelled at from my wife about that, but (laughs) I don't take a salary as of yet. I am trying to establish the foundation a lot more because we just started and I want to the 99% of the money to go to blessing families and paying for the staff. But our budget is a little over a million a year and it is just, a lot with fundraising. A lot of that time goes to fundraising. Once you do secure a spot and find a spot, that's the easy part. The hardest part is just raising enough capital to get to your yearly figure. So Kenneth, let's dive into this. And I suspect your answer will align with my answer. If you had to put a percentage on the amount of time that you spend fundraising versus doing other stuff in the nonprofit, what would that number be like? 50%, 60%, 20%. What do you think? About 85, 90%. Yes, that was the right answer. (laughs) And I I might not be giving enough credit. Yeah, 85, 90%. Because I said, the easy part is actually doing what you're good at. The easy part for me is actually finding the family, finding the home, renovating it, having all the smiles. The hard part is the fundraising. Yeah. But again, if you stay on mission, 
when you're asking people for money, just stay clear with your vision and why you're asking for it. They have to know your why. And Kenneth, I just want to underscore, highlight, double click on what you said, which is the role of an executive director, especially in the startup phases, is your fundraising. And I think that hard reality needs to be heard loud and clear for people who think that starting a nonprofit is about hugging panda bears. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Now, let me ask you this. Kenneth, when you first started, was that a surprise to you or did you anticipate that the bulk of your time would be in fundraising? I have to admit, I was naive. I kind of Mm -hmm. felt like most people that start a nonprofit, hey, I'm going to just start this nonprofit. I'm going to get all these government grants and all the friends that know and love me will just rain down money on me. (laughs) I remember that conversation. (laughs) It's like, no. No, Andrea's like, uh, Kenny, what about your grant writing? My grant what? Your grant writing. So they helped me put together my grant proposals and things of that nature. And again, you find yourself about 85, 90% of the time raising funds. Yeah. It sounds like you were very well positioned because you had a lot of relationships already in the community and a lot of friends who had capacity. I'm just thinking about folks out there who don't have that kind of network or those kind of friends. And that's a hard road. Would you say, Andrea? Well, when I first started fundraising for films, okay, you don't really know the people that want to invest. So I started thinking about people that had a little bit of income. Believe it or not, it was dentists. I found that dentists have a lot of disposable income. So I just started cold calling dentists. I started cold calling dentists, and there were some that wanted to do something pretty fun. So if you don't have a background like mine where you know people that want to invest money, start calling, calling doctors lawyers, dentists, and just, again, know your why, stay on task, and your goal should be to make, if you're going to be making these phone calls, your goal should be, mine was to make 50 phone calls a day. Now, it sounds like, oh, that's quick, but if you make 50 phone calls a day, come on, that's 250 phone calls a week. Out of that 250 phone call, you know, you'll get one or two people that'll say yes, but that's the type of grind that it takes, but it can be done. Yep. And I just want to underscore this so much because especially I think with younger fundraisers, they think that they can do this without having the personal relationship and the personal conversation, right? It's about the phone. It's about being face-to-face. And I think this idea of like, I can just send an email or have a peer-to-peer campaign or some like, I have to tell you like that ice bucket challenge is probably the worst thing to ever happen to fundraising because everyone thinks that they can have some kind of cute viral video and like, oh, then like millions of dollars will just like come from floating down from the sky. It is about personal relationships, people. Andrea, your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely, the ice bucket challenge, whoever made that up, just totally ruined it for everyone. Although very successful, like fundraising, like you said, we're in such a texting social media. Oh, just put a Facebook donation. Okay, you'll raise $2,000 versus calling people like Kenneth, putting the effort could get you the $100,000 you are looking for. So it's just that fundraising aspect is so important. And I, again, they think that money is going to rain on them with their 501c3. To your point with a lot of those small organizations, because we do open smaller ones for those who maybe do smaller shelters. Sometimes I recommend them to stick to their in-kind. I love that you use the dentist's office because when I had a back-to-school project here in Orlando, I started going to calling the lawyers, the doctors, because we also would do a health clinic. 
And even though if they couldn't go, even if they couldn't give me money, I had a dentist giving me like 300 hygiene kits to give this back to school. So like yeah. all of that adds up, you know, like, so that's why I like to think no matter how small your nonprofit, if it's a three person doing small things in that one sector, run it like a business. You're gonna, for those small things you do, you're going to have to run it like a business. You're going to have to run it with volunteers and things. And if your thing isn't getting a lot of money, it could be getting a lot of donations, right? I look a lot at like food banks. Most of their income is really in-kind, right? Because mm-hmm. they don't all of that. So there's ways to get it without a lot of capital. I mean, yours kind of is going to require a lot of capital, but I remember that conversation with him. I remember like, yeah, we just incorporated you. I'm not giving you (laughs) a $5 million grant, but let's look at what your community can provide. And if we can start maybe with Home Depot or Lowe's giving you some supplies for these renovations, how cool is that? Now you can tell a bigger organization that a brand name is helping you get these houses. So all of that is part of that crawl walk and then ultimately bigger. Let me ask you a question though. And this gets again into my favorite topic, which is fundraising. Let's talk about the four letter F word, fear. I feel like the big thing that really holds new fundraisers back is a fear of rejection or a fear of judgment. For someone like yourself, who's making 50 cold calls a day, I'm sure you get rejected a lot. How do you deal with that rejection? 49 times a day, I keep it moving. <laughs> you keep it moving. What I try to remember is this, somebody somewhere because of our foundation, the Legacy Community Restoration Foundation will sleep comfortably. So I can accept this rejection if down the line it makes someone feel good. That's what I think about. Again, I hate to sound like a broken record. I know what my why is. I know why I'm doing it. So I can accept the no's, I can accept the rejection. Yeah. And one thing I always like to talk about in fundraising is it's not personal. I think when we start to personalize it and make it about us, that's when it starts to really break us down. When people say no to the thing that you're offering them, it's because mm-hmm. they're saying this is not their thing. They're not saying like, you're a terrible person, Kenneth. You're, you know, I don't like you. I, I don't, I reject you. They're just saying this is not the right thing for them. Mm-hmm. Got it. Yeah. I just stay on my why. Okay, last question coming in from Marvin. So if you're a revenue generating nonprofit, so let's say that you sell services, how are you choosing between being an LLC B Corps and being a 501c3? Andrea, I think this is one for you. Yes, definitely. I'm not very familiar with the for-profit LLC, but I can stick to what I know for nonprofits who decide to sell, you know, whether it's merchandise and things like that. It really depends a lot on what your charitable is, right? Are you selling the items because they also fulfill a purpose? So let's look at these coffee shops that we are seeing popping out with helping hire people with disabilities, right? oh, that's great. I would sell so much coffee or make so much profit. But most of these are also tied that the end goal is they will go with the nonprofit for some kind of training. Their whole organization is really based about this program that they're providing people with disabilities rather than the coffee shop, right? All of these revenue bringing in 
sales shouldn't be the main focus, but rather it's the end goal, right? We help people with disabilities for job training, which is charitable for low-income classes. So, But the goal is the program that they go to, and the end goal is that they get hired by this coffee shop. So the coffee shop is not the essence of the nonprofit, right? And that's what will qualify you to have that revenue, but an end goal. So as long as you tie it with, you know, some kind of charitable program, educational, it can stick. In terms of, I know there's a couple things that are running like L3Cs and a couple of states have different structures now that allow you to be social enterprises and things like that. I still don't recommend it because funders will not accept that unless you have a 501c3 letter. I don't care how nice you are to people in your community, that 501c3 is what makes them tax exempt. So legally, even if they provide to your charitable LLC, you're not you won't get that tax exemption for funders or qualify for grants. That's a little bit of my snippet. There's things like thrift stores and all of that that have different structures, but they are nonprofit corporations. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I will just say to add on, like, it's not really an either or. So Marvin, I've, mm-hmm. I've seen cases in which there's a for-profit LLC with a nonprofit arm or vice versa, right? So let's say you have yeah. a 51 c 3 and then like you launch a consulting business underneath the 51 c 3 that is an LLC. So you can have a hybrid model. Yeah. Any last questions coming in? This has been so fun. And Kenneth, little did I know that you are such a fundraising master. (laughs) (laughs) Just start with the people you know. Start with the people you know or the people you've raised money with before. I love that you use the word fear because it's funny to me that they would be scared. You're about to launch a business. Like this is a big dream. And your fear of projection, I think it's something that we also try to educate on. Like, yeah. You took the step to hire our services. Don't be fearful to call the people that you know. Don't call your baby daddy. There is already drama there. <laughs> call people in your community. Call the leaders. You never know. Call a politician. Hell, but maybe your election's coming up soon and they want something good on their resume. Like, you really never know what powerful person will say yes to you and give you $50,000. Like, can- <laughs> yeah. But I will say to that point, Andrea, that like, I think people think that like, as soon as we start this, everybody is going to be our donor. Nope. Well, if everybody is your donor, then nobody is your donor, right? So yep. I'm going to get back to Kenneth's point, which is it's about personal relationships. So yep. on that note, Kenneth, take us out. Any last well, thoughts that s- we have? Yeah, please. Last thought, she mentioned calling a politician. Just give you a quick note. I called the commissioner of Miami Gardens. I'm based out of Miami, Florida. And I saw that there was a housing grant with the U.S. government. And they were absolutely excited to partner with me on it. To qualify for this particular housing grant, you had to partner with a city, and I use Miami Gardens, and we've actually put in an application for a $35 million housing grant, and we will find out if we get this in April. So when you say call politicians, just step out there on faith, no fear, and give them a call. They were actually happy to see, hear what we were doing, trying to do for the community, and guys, you can do this. I'm nobody. I have no idea of what I'm doing. Whenever I have a question, I call Andrea, who I consider Brightbridge, my partners. Hey, Andrea, I don't know what the hell is going on. She'll say, hey, I got it. Okay, you can do the same thing. It is not easy, but it's doable. Yeah, and that's, to your point, Kenneth, like we're facing a world in which things are going to be tough and even tougher for folks. So if you have any impulse to change the world, you can do it. Exactly. Thank you so much. And last thing I want to say, famous words in fundraising, you don't ask, you don't get. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> not Go at out all. There and ask. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. We learned so much. Really appreciate you all. Have a good weekend. Take care. See you you next time.